Listener Production. Nakia Louie is an actor, writer and comedian. She is a Gamilaroi and Torres Strait Islander woman who is well known as a passionate, determined advocate for the rights and equality of First Nations people. Nakia's artistic achievements are almost too many to name here, but I know many of you will recognise her from TV shows like Black Comedy, Preppers, Kiki and Kitty and Get Cracking, or follow her witty acerbic takes on Twitter. But this week, in this episode of The Weekend Briefing, I got to know a different side of the creative firebrand. Nakia Louie is now mum to 10-week-old Lux, and the tone and tenor of her storytelling in this interview is quite different to anything I've heard from her before. My name is Jamila Rizvi and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. The Weekend List is on its way, where Bron and I recommend what to watch, see, do, eat and listen to. But first, here is a really quite touching conversation with the incredibly talented Nakia Louie. Nakia Louie, welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Hello, how are you? Thank you for having me. I'm so well. I was just apologising for my voice because I haven't slept very much this week and then realised that I am apologising about my lack of sleep to a new mother, which is some sort of crime against humanity, I think. So first things first, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you very much. (laughs) How is, like, being a parent? I still, I still feel like a bit of a stun mullet, to be honest. Like, I feel yeah. like I'm still in the thick of it. And it is so weird that I am a parent. Like, I decided to once bike ride down to the wine shop, actually, right before I got pregnant in, like, high-heeled loafers with, like, a baguette because I thought it was, like, cute <laughs> and then, like, fell off my butt. Like, I just don't feel like I'm the type of person who should be interested with the responsibility for someone else. But, um... You know, when I hold her, her name's Lux, um, I feel this is so cliche and sentimental that, you know, that you get to, like, just, like, how lucky is it that we get to, to like, get to love this little being. Oh, I'm so happy to hear you say that. I reckon there is something about parenthood that turns you into a cliche because you realise that all of them are true, like, they're cliches for a reason. Oh, totally. And, it, like, for me, it started at the, because I gave, I, I had a, I had a vaginal birth, TMI, like, but um, Not at I all. felt like I was in a movie. I was like, I'm in, like, yeah. a Judd Apatow film or something. Everyone's like, push. And, like, it was like, oh, my goodness. This is so surreal. I couldn't write this. Um, and then, you know, all of the cliches are true, but it's, it's wonderful when you get to experience it. And at times, utterly kind of distressing. Um, but yeah, I'm still in, like, I'm still in the thick of it. You're someone who is certainly from the outside appears incredibly driven and without doubt is incredibly hardworking when it comes to your career. What has it been like to, like babies are all encompassing, right? What's yeah. it been like to have to stop to an extent and for a period? Yeah, look, I'll be really honest. It was really hard. Like it's been a bit hard. Um, I think I'm. I, I'm really. I had this thought today when I was in the shower, and I was like, I think I've been self-medicating my anxiety and things like that with, with work. You know, things like insecurity, like getting going really deep, really fast. But I think I've been, you know, kind of 
I look at pathways and like hitting those, meeting those goals and having these kind of bigger things to attach myself to is a way to kind of ease worry. And so even when I was pregnant, you have like the things you need to do every day. I need to do my book. I need to take my prenatal vitamin. I was still working up until I gave birth on the, the Sunday and I was working up until that Saturday. So, you know, it was like busy, busy, busy. And when you have a child, even though it's like a lack of sleep and there's so much going on, there's a lot of time of just being and stillness. Yeah. And I've had to really, I think, especially in like the last couple of weeks, having um, like I think I've had, you know, postnatal anxiety because I have a natural, like I have an anxiety disorder. So that's the hormones were kind of peaked. I've had to really sit down and think about my work in terms of, well, one, having a daughter, what do I want, like, do I want my work to speak to her? How do I want it to speak to her? How is my work engaging with the world? So there's that kind of conversation that I'm now engaging with. But also, you know, like what are the day-to-day moments in your life that aren't work? Like what are the things that make up your life that aren't just these, you know, ticks of approval, ticks of meeting things. And I think I'm still, you know, I'm at the very beginning of that conversation of what what is life without that constant going forward and sitting in the everyday when you need to give someone else that energy and attention and love. And how do I move through that to make sure she's okay and having the best life possible? So that's something that I, I'm really like right at the beginning of, of a journey of kind of figuring out. And I don't know if I will, but hey, I've articulated it. So. Yeah, <laughs> I, see, I hear yeah. that's the start, right? So much of what you've just said really speaks to me because I think when you're someone who is sort of achievement focused and you're almost going through a mental to-do list of how hard you can work to pull off the next thing, yeah. parenthood, especially early parenthood, really sucks you out of that because you're so busy but it's not mentally taxing. And you're right, there is so much where you're just sitting and alone with your thoughts. And then the anxious mind is like, well, let me fill that alone time with some not great thoughts. <laughs> yeah. And it's also like you're sitting there and you're exhausted and it's like, will I ever have a creative idea ever again? Did my career just go out the window? I wanted to ask about your own childhood because I reckon having a baby means that you start to look to your model of what it is to bring up a child, which for most of us is whoever brought us up. And I think for some people that can be a real focus on what they don't want to do. And for others, it's more about here are the bits that I want to keep and here are the bits that perhaps I don't. When you think about your own childhood, what are the bits that you think, yeah, I want to recreate that. That is something I want to carry through for this next generation. Yeah, I've been really... You know, it's really funny. I was joking with my parents and a friend. I was like, wow, having a baby kind of really makes you a socialist, right? (laughs) (laughs) You know, it really kind of does. And I'm really lucky in that I come from a very close-knit family. And, you know, my family have been really, really active with care for Lux. And that's my, my little girl. And my husband, you know, it's very 50-50. He's been amazing. He invented this thing called the shift system. Well, he thought he invented it. But when we told our doctor, our doctor was like, no, dude, that's been around forever. (laughs) I'm really disappointed. So we've been sleeping in shift, which is great. Um, But, you know, I think you feel like passing ships in the night a little bit. It's like, how are you going? Okay, cool. See you in like a couple of days. Yeah. What was really amazing to me was, you know, my parents worked 
all through. My mum pretty much worked full time pretty quickly after um, she gave birth to me. And my nan, um, you know, took care of me and my sister uh, quite a lot because, you know, financially they weren't in a position to not work. Um, But we had the blessing of having a family member being able to take care of us. And I think what I really, really respect about my parents is they this idea of, of creating community and doing that for family. And I really want Lux to feel like she has, you know, like that old proverb, it takes a village to raise a child. Like I'm her mother, but I know there's like she's going to have relationships with other people in her life, especially adults that are going to, you know, nurture her and, and care for her and be able to show her the world in a way that I'm not going to. And in some ways, just purely because I'm her mum, you know, like mums are, you know, you kind of resent them. I don't know what, like as a teenager, right? You'd be like, oh, mum, yeah. leave me alone. They can be kind of more than just kind of call of like a little bit of a whipping board when you're upset. Your mum's a part of you in a way, like your parents are a part of you. So mm. I think for me, I had such a close relationship with my grandmother and my grandfather and other adults in my life. I really, I really want her to feel that sense of that she's loved by many people, not just her mum and dad. And I ended up in hospital recently for about a week um, just with a virus. So it was like pretty um, nothing, like fully recovered. But it made me realise how lucky I was that I had a a family there to take care of her. And if anything ever happened, that there are people with, with values and love. And I think that's really important because... I think the way in which, going back to your question about work as well, when you're very like ambitious and work driven, you know, we can be quite individualistic about kind of our goals and our career paths and the way in which we live our lives. And family is something I think that we can take for granted and we need to build, but also, you know, you need to build communities and and being with your friends and extended family. So I think for myself, that's something I I really realise I have to put more work into now that I have a daughter you know it can't just be me sitting on a laptop doing zooms jetting off overseas to do my work it's like no there's community we need to build because that's what makes up our you know our, our lives and our generations and our legacies yeah I remember when my little boy was maybe two and a two and a half uh between age two and a half and four and a half I was really unwell and yeah. I look back on that period now and the early months were spent in so much internal panic that I wasn't being the parent that I wanted. I wasn't being the anything I wanted to be, but I wasn't being the parent I wanted to be. And I look back on it now, that two years, and think similar to you, like how incredibly fortunate we were because I can see the benefits. My son's now seven. I can see the benefits of having trusted and been loved by so many adults in those sort of two and a half years. And, you know, I don't think it's ever good times for a kid when your mum's sick, but those two and a half years meant that he developed really close and trusting relationships with so many grown-ups in his life. And that stands a kid in, in really good stead and I think pushes it back against so much against that trope, right, that mum is the only one that matters. It's just it's simply not true, which is both a hard thing to know and a really important thing to know. Yeah, no, I think you're really, you're really right in that. And even just with some of the language, like, you know, exclusively breastfeeding, you know, just I know this, maybe I'm reading too much into this, but 
it's this idea of like exclusive motherhood, like this relationship. It's like you and your child. And whilst there's nothing that can compare and it's so special and there's nothing, you know, I think you know, my happiest moments have been holding her next to my chest and just, you know, kind of like just that really, that idea of that it's all kind of that relationship based, that, that is the most important. And you're right, there is, there's so much more. And I think it really reassesses, I don't know how, how you saw that during your health journey and coming out the other side, but it kind of reassesses your role as a person and a parent, I think, about like, like what, what, what is, like, what is the legacy? Like, what have you built and what are you, what are you creating for this person who's, who's year who's virtually really missed after, long after we're gone, right? Yeah, yeah. When I was uh, doing a little bit of reading and listening and watching in preparation for this chat, I followed your career for so long, but I wanted to try and uh, fill in some of the some of the holes in the in the storytelling. <laughs> you have been someone who is a prodigious creator of work. Like I can't touch on you know, one TV show, one play, one film, for example, like I sometimes can with a guest because there's just too much to cover. A lot of your work, though, comes back to this idea of storytelling and a lot of those stories are around a person's place in the world and, and that kind of exploration of finding yourself in a world that perhaps isn't always kind to you. Assuming that over the next decade or so of your career, you're going to keep telling stories. Do you think that narrative is going to start to change for you? What do you want to keep saying? What do you want to keep doing? I think, you know, as a First Nations person, that my experience as a First Nations person and I am going to be passionate about telling stories with First Nations Mm. protagonists and issues that engage with it just because it's so close to me, like it's part of me. So I'm always going to see the world through that lens, you know, in the same way that my husband, who's like a straight white guy, he's going to see the world through that level of, you know, whether it be, I don't want to say privilege because there's a privilege there, but it's always going to be through privilege, but it's always going to be part of his gaze, yeah. right? It's just being aware of it and how you interact with it and and, and the questions that you then, that then stem from that. Um in terms of the stories that we tell as the landscape changes, hopefully my stories will change with it. And if not, then I should not be writing. <laughs> um, but also I think in terms of um, the types of stories and who I'm writing for, I think for me in Australia, I still felt like I was being pigeonholed a bit, like you only write for Aboriginal people. Sure. Um, the rooms that you get off there, they're kind of, you know, mainly if there's an Aboriginal character or they want to do, like, you know, whereas I think overseas, I've a little bit of freedom to be able to feel like I have a little bit of value with my perspectives um, that can be applied to, um, I guess, a community outside of my diaspora, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> like I'd love to do, do like a mumblecore drama about an Aboriginal girl who like finds bikes and eats cheese. Maybe someone else is going to write that in a couple of years who's like younger in a different landscape and maybe my work has helped open that door a little bit or help pave the pathway for people to tell different things and create different work and maybe take more risks. I think that's important as well. You know, it's that I always think like if someone can 
hear, see, watch my work, engage with it, consume it and feel like, hey, I feel like maybe I have a place because this chubby girl from Mount Druid is being able to to tell these stories. Maybe I feel important and then maybe maybe then other people, there's space for them to create more stories. Sometimes I think when it comes to storytelling, especially with getting diverse voices out there, sometimes it's a little bit of um, quantity over quality. But what we found is the quality comes anyways. So the more the merrier. Often when you start to do some work that is outside of Australia or even just outside of a a sphere in which you've been operating for some time, it gives you a perspective on what you have been doing and on the way that part of the world works or thinks or acts that perhaps you didn't have when you were deep within it because it's sort of, you know, hard to see the wood from the trees, let's say. With a little bit more of that perspective, looking at the Australian film, television, uh, theatre industry, looking at the way we tell stories, do you think we're doing better when it comes to the representation of diverse voices and diverse stories or are we still in our infancy on some kind of journey in that space? Yeah, I think Australia is such an interesting landscape. I think like a really good example is I had a play out called Blacky Blacky Brown, the traditional owner of death, and it was a kind of satirical comedy, really, really stupid. And I got uh, like slammed for it pretty badly, um, saying that I was, you know, advocating basically violence against white people. Yeah. Uh, And I was having, you know, really death threats sent to me. I'm sorry. Death sent to my family's home. Like Mm. it was, it was really bad. And I think that was the culmination of when I did the final episode of Get Cracking, I, uh, that was kind of taken out of context. I know, there's nothing I hate more than a podcast where people are talking about something that I can't go and see, but this one you can, folks. Uh, you can jump yeah. on, you can jump on iView and have a look at the final episode of Get Cracking. I'm Miranda Tapsell. I'm not Deborah Malin, and this is my fun-loving co-host Nakia Louie. <laughs> yes, I am Nakia Louie, but don't worry, I'm not going to ruin your morning by talking about all the Aboriginal people locked behind bars of our rising incarceration rates. So, whoops, I just did. And we're so excited because for 25 unprecedented Australian morning TV minutes. Two Aboriginal women are going to be here hosting this show. Yes, sharing our thoughts, feelings and opinions. But not too many opinions, Nakia. Oh, no, not too many because, trust me, when a black woman has opinions in the Australian media, all white people see is the Hulk ripping a car in half. No angry black ladies here. (laughs) Sorry, everybody, that I'm talking about. I think those two things in in it, like, my characters yelled out and stuff. I'm playing, like, a fictional version of myself and I pull down... (laughs) my underwear and like try and take a oh, it sounds so it is really juvenile on a on a cushion and my um my understanding of colonization <laughs> job is so stupid when I say stuff like this and then I'll my I remember my friend was sitting in the lounge in London at the airport and they were like you're on the you're on the TV <laughs> with your underwear around your ankle like what's going on? And I think it really started to take a huge it did start to take a number on my mental health. Sure. You know, I, I started to really question who I was, um, that maybe these things about me were right, that I wasn't very good. Just that second guessing, that being kind of becoming part of your foundation every single day, having to fight that voice of maybe they're right, 
Maybe you are this. Maybe you are an idiot. Maybe you're not very good. And it starts to seep into every other little bit of your being and it's tiring. And the funny thing is, is that it was Blackie Brown that got me my in to the state. Yeah, right. You know, it was that that got my agents read that and were like, we need to get her. And that was sent on to production companies and producers and HBO who oh. then were like, no, this is actually really good. And so this thing that I was like, maybe it wasn't good, maybe I'm an idiot, maybe, you know, that caused you like this huge amount of pain here. Because oh. um, I was really proud of that play and writing is what I love. It's, you know, my therapy and my drug of choice. It, to kind of have that taken away from me was, was really hard to deal with. Um, and it happens so slowly, you know, the world ends not with a bang but with a whimper yeah. and that's kind of how it, it was happening. And um, but in a way it was so well received there. And for the reason I talk about in our infancy, I think we're really starting to see some great storytelling coming out of this country. There's been a lot of proactive work, a lot of people in executive positions and key creative roles to create pathways, you know, looking at the Indigenous unit at ABC, and a lot of creatives who've gone through that. Um, that took many, many decades of hard work and slowly building things. And some of our best shows have come out of that, like Total Control. Yeah. It's an ABC red show now, um, like comedy preppers, I'll just say, because yeah. I wrote it. Um, and then, you know, we've got streamers setting up here, which I think creates another, another bunch of opportunities. Um, and so we have some amazing talent coming out of this country. I think it's about changing our audience as well and understanding that our audience is that those who may scream the loudest, such as, you know, in my case, the people who we're taking get cracking out of context purposely and taking away, like, I guess, my agency as an artist, you know, because I was performing as an actor and they were saying McKee really did that. Mm. You wouldn't say that Russell Crowe believed, like, he had those beliefs that he held when he did Wampus Stumper. Mm. Like, he's allowed to be an actor, but I'm not. Mm. Do, do you see what yeah, I mean? Like, it's yeah. really hard to say without being whingy, but I think it's, you know, we need to. I don't know how, but I think where we are a little bit backwards is how loud those voices get to be dominating the conversation. I think we need to realise that our audience within Australia are made up. I often think about when I used to catch the train in from St. Mary's into the bus train theatre when I started writing um, like back in, you know, 20, 2012, 2011. That's where our audiences look like, yeah. you know, and I think maybe we start, you know, it's a little bit chicken and the egg, but how do you start making it so it's accepted that our audiences are as diverse as our screens? Maybe we need to make our screens more diverse, like which comes first. And so I think in terms of, you know, making more drama, more Australian content. There's a big discussion happening at the moment within the screen industry in particular about Make It Australian. There being kind of quotas for Australian work. We need more Australian writers yeah. and those writers need to be diverse and represent what our communities look like and exist as. And then, you know, that then translates onto our screens and then our screens need to reflect us. I think if you can see it, you can be it, but if you can hear it, you can say it. Sometimes just personally, I think the conversation of what's being said really loudly in the media is very weighted to one side sometimes. 
we need to protect those people who may be from like different backgrounds because sometimes they come under a bit more fierce attack because of the things that make them different and we need those voices to make our country better. That is so incredibly articulate and speaks to so much of my own experience growing up as an Indian Muslim kid searching for someone who was a bit like me on TV or in the theatre and kind of coming up short. So thank you so much for those words and also for the work that you create. Oh. Nikia, thank you so much for being my guest on The Weekend Briefing. Thanks, Cyrilla. That's it for my conversation with Nakia Louie. I highly recommend that you jump onto ABC iView or onto YouTube and have a look at the Get Crackin' season finale from 2017 in October. Nakia both wrote that episode and appeared in it as an actress. And, oh, my gosh, it will stay with you for a lifetime. Don't go away. The Weekend List is coming up. It is weekend list time. I'm here. Bron's here. We have got recommendations for you. Bron is going to start us off. What have you been up to, my friend? So there's this new app going around, or maybe not new, maybe I'm just old, but there's an app going around called Be Real. It is so fun. It's a You get a notification that goes off uh, once a day. It goes off at the same time for everybody um, that has the app. You have two minutes to post a photo. It takes a photo on your front camera and your back camera. And you just post whatever you're doing at that time. So it's trying to be more authentic, I guess, than the really staged Instagram posts that we're all used to seeing, all the curated content that's coming out. Yeah, you just get to see what everyone's up to during the day. You get to take a peek at your friends at work. It's usually very boring and monotonous stuff that everyone's up to at random points in the day, but it is a lot of fun. I love that and I've been hearing so much about it, but I am worried I'll go on it and none of my friends will be there and I haven't been trying. So you have prompted me uh, to get on board, Bron. I want to recommend an Instagram page, folks, and this is for anyone who likes a little bit of cooking but just doesn't want it to be too hard and wants to try some new stuff without having to go out and shop for a whole bunch of ingredients that you don't already have in the cupboard. So the Instagram uh, profile is pizza underscore night underscore which I think gives you the vibe of the page anyway. It's created by Patty, who is a recipe maker and the mum to a kid who is celiac and so it's also like really inclusive cooking. Most of it is around pizza and bowls and noodles and toasted sandwiches that aren't your old ham and cheese situation. Really, really simple, really, really quick, kid-friendly for anyone who's a parent uh, or just a really fussy eater and just absolutely delicious. And the photography is so beautiful. You are going to absolutely fall in love with Pizza Night's life at the same time. Oh my God, I need to go follow. Um, my next one is an article in Rolling Stone. Um, it's titled The Real Story of the Birth of Fallout Boy. It's an article that has an excerpt from Joe Troman's uh, new memoir, who's the guitarist of Fallout Boy. Um, the memoir is called None of This Rocks, which I cannot wait to sink my teeth into once I get my hands on it. Um, I was obsessed with Fallout Boy as a teenager. I loved everything they did, but this excerpt that he shows, it's... I don't know, it takes a new side of what I thought the band was. It goes into how they formed the band. He's super open with his thoughts and, like, the misses of certain songs and certain albums that he's really not proud of, which I was 
really intrigued by because some of them are my favourite songs and albums. So I'm surprised by that. And yeah, and things that didn't go like a certain way. So it's really interesting. And yeah, I think even if you weren't a Fallout Boy obsessed teen like myself, um, it's still interesting to hear the backstory, how he was dealing with untreated mental health issues at the time, imposter syndrome, you know, all these things going on while the band is touring. They were huge. They're doing all these worldwide tours and all that stuff's just going on inside his head. I don't know. It it sounds amazing. Wow. Okay. That is a lot all in one piece of content. I am really keen to unpack all of that and also have similar uh, memories of being a mega fan back in the day. Uh, My final recommendation, I really need to stress this, folks, that this is not sponsored. I have uh, paid for all the things myself. Uh, But on the weekend, a whole bunch of friends and I and our partners and our kids uh, headed down to Y River in Victoria for the weekend. And we stayed at one of the big four holiday parks. So they have holiday parks all over the country. I'm not going to like name them all because then it'll turn into a total ad. You can all Google. But it was just so perfect. And I think the reason for that was threefold. The first thing was that we had a whole lot of people there who are super campers and kind of mega snobs on the camping front and like to do everything themselves. And so for them, they could camp, but also hang out with the rest of us. Then there were the people like me who really like warm showers and and proper toilets and plumbing. And so we could cabin it up and stay in like, you know, a house with heating and stuff. It was pretty basic, but it was comfortable. And the kids just went wild. They lived off the land. They were jumping on pillows. They were go-karting. They were going, uh, looking for koalas and cockatoos and kangaroos. And we somehow managed to have the vast majority of about 30 children supervised by two adults at a time while the rest of us enjoyed ourselves. I don't know. I just had one of the loveliest weekends. The weather was beautiful and it's such a gorgeous part of Victoria, Y River. So, If you're someone who's a bit nervous at the moment about travelling and going overseas again, you're keen, but you're still like a little part of anxiety is holding you back. Um, I think a little bit more of exploring at home and this is one suggestion on how to do it. That's it for the weekend list for another week. Bron, thank you so much for being with me. If you want to make sure you never miss an episode of The Briefing or indeed The Weekend Briefing, then you should subscribe. You can do that wherever you get your podcasts or you can download the Listener app now and you can follow us there as well as see a whole bunch of other great podcasts that Listener creates. It will also mean that you will never miss an episode. If you want to leave us a rating and a review while you're there, I ask every week. Not all of you have done it. Please do that. It would make me very happy. We will be back bright and early Monday morning where Tom and the team will have the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Listener.